If you're like me, you care about getting the most from your workouts, which means wearing the finest performance gear. You know, fabric that dries quickly and has superior moisture wicking properties. Fabric so soft and comfortable, you could, well, curl up and sleep in it. Introducing Sheeks, spelled S-H-E-E-X, the world's first performance bedding line. Sheeks began when two former elite athletes and coaches had an aha moment, combining everything we love about quality performance fabric with everything we love about comfortable, irresistible bedding. Unlike traditional sheets that trap heat, sheiks are breathable, so you aren't constantly waking up to throw off covers or add a blanket. So you sleep deeper, longer, and better. And sheiks bedding looks as good as it feels. Colors and styles that can match any decor at a price that will pleasantly surprise you. And right now, you can try sheiks for 30 nights risk-free. Just go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com promo code 1212. Sleepcoolnow.com, 1212. This is hour number one of the World According to Zig podcast for this March 17th, 2019. My name is John Ziegler. I'm the host of the show, where you can still get the truth about the news of the day from a conservative perspective in this world turned upside down. Our website is freespeechbroadcasting.com. Happy St. Patrick's Day to you. Hope you're enjoying it nearly as much as my six-year-old daughter Grace did as she concocted her own leprechaun myth that her mother decided to go along with, and she was very happy with the gold chocolates that she found outside in our garden this morning. I have no idea how she pulled this off, but she did. But that's uh, that's what six-year-olds do. But uh, happy Thanksgiving, St. Patrick's Day to you. Uh, it's been a weird week, a lot of bad news in the news. Uh, most of that you're going to be able to find in the Individual One podcast, which I am now been doing on a biweekly basis, twice a week, that is focused on the presidency of Donald Trump. Uh, that's where you'll find the Trump news as well as the um, New Zealand massacre, which I relate to. Uh, Donald Trump at the beginning of this week's edition of the Individual One Podcast. You can find the Individual One Podcast at freespeechbroadcasting.com or uh, via my Twitter feed, which is Zygmunt Freud, also my uh, Facebook page. So if you're interested in that, uh, Individual One is the place to go. In this uh, world, according to Zig Hour, and we're only doing one hour this week for a couple different reasons, uh, but we've got a lot to get to. In this hour, I want to review a, a, a series of stories, including that uh, amazing college admissions scandal, which is uh, going to be a fantastic movie when they make it. Of course, they're not going to be able to use any of the <laughs> of the actual stars who were in the movie because their careers are, or they're in the story because their careers are all going to be over. Although, who knows? In this strange world, I guess anything is possible. But I do want to talk about that, uh, although it, it's similar. And I guess the theme, if there's a theme to this hour of the World According to Zig podcast, it's that almost everything is fake, that almost everything is a fraud, that we're living in a fake world. You know, Donald Trump talks a lot about fake news. Well, the whole world is fake. It's, I'm beginning to think everything is fake. And, uh, and certainly in, uh, consistent with that uh, is the story that I've been embroiled with very deeply over the last uh, couple of weeks and was really the focus uh, of our last edition of the World According to Zig podcast. And that is the, the controversy surrounding the HBO movie, Leaving Neverland, 
where uh, two guys accused Michael Jackson of horrific, horrendous, and extensive child sex abuse many, 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 many years after they had, uh, had supposedly happened and after they had supported Michael in many, many ways, including testifying on his behalf. Uh, in case you missed it, last week's edition of the World According to Zig podcast, we did not one but two interviews with key members of the Jackson family. One was uh, Brandy Jackson, Michael Jackson's niece, who dated Wade Robson, who was one of the two accusers in the HBO movie, for about eight years during both of their entire teenage years. And the other is Todd Jackson, Michael Jackson's nephew, who spent thousands and thousands of hours with Michael Jackson, knew Wade Robson, and has a whole lot of other information about why the movie is a complete fraud and a fake and a phony. And that's pretty much where I am now. I mean, I, like most people, watched that uh, film and was, was horrified by what I saw and was impacted emotionally. But I guess because I'm Spock-like, the uh, emotions of that movie wore off very quickly for me. Uh, it's an interesting comparison uh, to see how I reacted to that uh, when you think about how my wife did. My wife, in a lot of these stories, uh, including the Penn State story, has been ahead of me in figuring out or, or believing uh, that certain uh, stories are false or, or a fraud. Uh, I think it's partially because she's a school teacher and she deals with a lot of kids at the age uh, where these accusations tend to occur. I, when it came to leaving Neverland, she bought in totally. I mean, the emotions of it made her very, very, very convinced that these stories were real. And we got in a bigger fight about Wade Robson than probably any news story we've had a fight about in a long, long time because I quickly realized, no, 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 no. Wade Robson is lying and it's not close. In fact, I've never seen a story that's closer than Wade Robson lying. I mean, if Wade Robson is telling the truth about Michael Jackson, then we might as well throw out our entire judicial system because there, the evidence that he is not telling the truth is many mountains, not just one mountain. I mean, books can and should, but probably will not be written about what a complete and total fraud he is. And I was thinking about this today. <clears throat> this is going to be a weird uh, comparison that only John Ziegler uh, <laughs> would make. But do you remember the, the story involving the mom, uh, Andrea Yates? Remember her? She was the one who, uh, who killed her five children in Texas, I believe it was, many years ago. Uh, post, supposedly because she had postpartum depression and she killed them all in a bathtub, remember? All right, here's the comparison. The pro-abortion people used Andrea Yates in much the same way that the child sex abuse uh, defenders, proponents, some might even call them terrorists, are using Wade Robson. And here's what I mean by that. If Andrea Yates can get away with killing her five children after they've been born, then obviously no one's ever going to touch abortion rights. <laughs> right? I mean, it's like this force field around abortion rights. If, you're, if a mom's allowed to kill her five children because of postpartum depression, then you're never going to make any headway against uh, uh, abortion, right? And, and I think subconsciously the abortion rights people understood that. 
Wade Robson is so obviously lying about Michael Jackson that if his story is allowed to stand, the rules will be created so that you can never, ever, 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 ever question a high-profile accusation of child sex abuse. No matter how discredited, no matter how nonsensical, no matter how many years later, no matter how contradicted by their own words and actions, it can never happen. And it, it's my, I tend, to, for a cynic, I tend to be naive at times, but I actually think that even the people who are promoting his story, including those who have interviewed him, like Oprah and her friend Gail King, and it's infuriating to me that only those two people are doing interviews. I mean, they're essentially the same people. I mean, Oprah and Gail King are, you know, there's no way that one's going to contradict the other. So th those, so these two guys do their interviews with them and it makes it, it creates the impression that somehow they're being transparent and opening themselves up to tough questioning when they're not. But uh, I actually have a, a sense that even they don't really believe Wade Robson. And here's why, because one of the many things getting lost in the leaving Neverland situation is that if they are telling the truth, especially Wade Robson, if Wade Robson is telling the truth, there should be immense anger at him. All right. Where's the anger at him? Let's pretend he's telling the truth. He, his story is that in 2005, he engaged in a conspiracy, which is bizarre since he supposedly didn't even know he was being sexually, had been sexually abused at this point. So this is one of the million things that don't make any sense. But his story is he engaged in a conspiracy to help Michael Jackson uh, get acquitted in a criminal trial where the accuser in that case a cancer survivor, this poor kid who allegedly, you know, supposedly we're supposed to believe now, was sexually abused by Michael Jackson. He prevented that cancer survivor from getting a fair trial because he perjured himself blatantly. Where's the anger over that? Where, where's the prosecutors in that case furious at Wade Robson for what he did? I haven't seen an ounce of it. And the reason why there's no anger is because I don't really think they really believe it. Deep down, I don't think they really believe But, you know, Robson's useful. It's a good story. It's a narrative they like. It's a hit. I think there might be some other things going on with why it is that uh, Oprah is suddenly uh, on the anti-Michael Jackson bandwagon. And, and so, you know, they're going to forget about this very quickly and move on. Um, but back to my wife. So... My wife usually has pretty good instincts on these things. And on Wade Robson, she was way off at first. And I think it shows just how emotionally manipulative that movie is. Because even my wife bought in. And it took me days, days to finally bring her down back to earth and get her off the cliff. And I did eventually convince her that Robson is lying. Uh, of course, I never got an apology for all the, you know, because when you're married, you never get an apology. <laughs> no matter, even when you win. In fact, sometimes winning the argument is worse than losing the argument when you're married, uh, at least in my experience, because the, the price you pay for being right is, is bigger than the price you pay for being wrong. And you never get the apology. But even my wife took, a se it took several days before she finally came down to earth. And so one of the reasons why we did the, the Brandy Jackson interview last week, because in my opinion, Brandy Jackson blows apart 
Wade Robson's story better than anybody because she was with him romantically at the very time when he claims to have been sexually abused by Michael Jackson. And I have to say that the reaction to that interview has very much substantiated my belief in her story. From a substantive standpoint, the reaction has been exactly as I expected and had hoped for. Lots of people have listened to it. It's, you know, it's been widely disseminated in various mediums. You can find it at Free Speech Broadcasting or at YouTube or if you just Google it. So from a substantive standpoint, I was thrilled. She was amazing. People got it. People who were open-minded who listened to it were like, okay, come on. Let's keep this real. <laughs> there is no way that Wade Robson... Uh, is telling the truth. There's no way that Dan Reed, the director, has any credibility when he leaves Brandy completely out of the film, doesn't even mention her because he didn't know she existed. So that part has been gratifying and has, you know, not been surprising because I expected it because I, I could tell how credible Brandy was and how powerful her story was. The part, though, that was disappointing was, and this goes back to me being the grizzled cynic who sometimes is still naive, I honestly thought that if we got her story out there in the, you know, at least some semblance of a mainstream outlet, you could argue whether or not Mediate, Dan Abram, that I write a column for about twice a week, is mainstream, but it's certainly read by a lot of mainstream news media outlets, thus the name Mediate. I actually thought that it, once the media became uh, mainstream media became aware of her story that somebody significant was going to interview her within the mainstream news media. I really did believe that that was likely. I didn't, I didn't tell them that was for sure. In fact, I told Brandy and, and her, her, um, her cousins that, you know, I can't guarantee anything, but I think there's a decent shot here if this goes well. But even I was surprised and disappointed that that did not happen. And let me give you some insight on what was going on behind the scenes. So I know for a fact that Good Morning America, which she says canceled her interview before the movie came out under highly suspect and convoluted reasoning, I know that they were repitched an interview with Brandy and they showed no interest which is bizarre, not just because of the substance of her interview, but also because it allows people to talk about uh, Ray Robeson cheating on her with Britney Spears to the point where he broke up the relationship, the famous relationship between Britney Spears and Justin Timberlake. Now, that alone, right there, that was, I thought, okay, they're not going to be able to resist that part. They're just not going to be able to, because this has been rumored for years, and this is the, 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 the most significant substantiation of that rumor that you're ever going to be able to get, right from Brandy Jackson, and, and, her, and she's got reasons why she knows that to be true, from Wade Robson's own mouth. So the fact that no one bit on that, that Good Morning America didn't bite on that, made me think, all right, there's something else going on here. And I wrote a column for Mediaite, which you can find at freespeechbroadcasting.com, about what the uh, prevention, the censorship, if you will, by the mainstream news media of Brandy Jackson's story tells us about the news media in general. And that is that it's flat out totally broken, fundamentally broken. 
And it's really fundamentally broken when it comes to these issues of accusations of sexual abuse, especially child sex abuse, where people's brains just explode. And the Brandy Jackson situation proved to me that there has now been a new rule that has been created. And it's a very, very dangerous rule. And that is that once someone is deemed to be a, a sanctified uh, child sex abuse victim, especially when they're sanctified by Oprah Winfrey, that once they're deemed by the media to be a sanctified child sex abuse victim, like Wade Robson is, Robson, from Leaving Neverland, then at that point, you are not, unless you, know, you get an exemption for being a massive celebrity, like maybe an R. Kelly, you are not allowed to directly contradict the story of the child sex abuse victim. You're just not allowed. So Brandy has direct evidence, testimony. Her story is incredibly credible. It's obviously relevant. Doesn't matter. Sorry, you're allowed to defend Michael Jackson in general, which is, which is so mind-blowingly frustrating. Wait a minute. So you're allowed to say he wouldn't do this, but you're not allowed to discredit the people who are saying he did do this and he's dead. Uh, yeah, that's fair. That makes a lot of sense. Um, and, and that, to me, uh, was one of the revelations over Brandy being censored by the mainstream news media. But it might not just be that. It might go deeper than that. Because there was another uh, situation involving TMZ. And TMZ, wow, they have been awful on this. And I'm going to get to what they did regarding Paris Jackson and an alleged suicide attempt yesterday. Paris Jackson, of course, being Michael Jackson's daughter. I'm going to get to, to that uh, momentarily, but I'll set this up by saying, you know, one of the outlets that I, I even went on Twitter and challenged TMZ and Harvey Levine, who runs TMZ, uh, I challenged them to interview Brandy Jackson. Because, you know, they had been doing a lot on this story, and you would think, I mean, if there's an outlet that is is created in a mindset that they might be willing to take this on, it would be TMZ. First of all, TMZ has a, a very strong black audience. I mean, they, they defend all sorts of black entertainers. And, uh, and so you would think that defending Michael Jackson or allowing Michael Jackson's niece to do that would be something that they would be into. Plus, they would love the Britney Spears, Justin Timberlake element. And so I went on Twitter and I challenged them and it got a bunch of retweets and someone from TMZ, a producer contacted me about them interviewing Brandy Jackson. I said, okay, well, I called him. I said, tell me what you're thinking about here. And they said, well, um, you know, we would do this by FaceTime, like on her phone. And we would do, you know, about a 10 minute interview. Then we would take a couple minutes and we would put it on our website and maybe talk about it on the show. And I'm like, no freaking way. There is no way I'm going to have a producer, uh, not that I'm in charge, but I'm not going to recommend that Brandy Jackson do an interview with a producer and then have that be edited and then, then talked about where, where by people where she can't defend herself or explain herself. No way. I said, here's what I want. I want, she lives in the Los Angeles area. I want Brandy Jackson in studio with Harvey Levine and, uh, and he can find out for herself why he's wrong about this issue. 
And what's really interesting about the Harvey Levine situation is, you know, when Wade Robson, uh, uh, Robson uh, uh, told his story back in 2013 on the Today Show, Harvey didn't buy it. Now, now that's interesting because that tells me something has fundamentally changed. And the number one thing that's fundamentally changed since 2013 is Me Too. Pre-Me Too, Harvey Levine was willing to say, wait a minute, this story doesn't make a lot of sense. And what's really interesting about that is Robeson's story is far less credible now than it was then. Why? Because his lawsuit required uh, discovery where we learned about all these emails that he had been sending where he's constructing his story and the judge realized that within those emails was proof that he had perjured himself in an effort to get around the statute of limitations of his lawsuit, which was thrown out, as was his testimony in the lawsuit. That all happened after the Today Show interview. So, and Harvey Levine is a lawyer who you normally these kind of things would matter to. So he's gone from being effectively anti-Robeson to being very pro-Robeson with me too in between, although there might be something even more sinister than that. So they said to me, TMZ did, okay, well, we'll, we'll, we'll repitch this to the producers and see if they're willing to interview, uh, uh, Brandy in studio with, with Harvey. I said, okay, fine. Well, they didn't get back to me, which, uh, or actually I think they did get back to me and said, no, sorry, we'll, we're, we're not willing to do that, but we'll do the FaceTime interview. And I said, well, don't expect us to get back to you. Because I, that that's ridiculous. There, there, there is no way that I, I'm going to let Brandy Jackson's, if I have anything to do with it, or I'm going to recommend that Brandy Jackson's story be told that way. Because you're just you're letting yourself be manipulated, especially when the outlet has already shown that they're not on your side and not to be trusted. So, in that context, so they then they went to Brandy directly. I don't even know if she ended up responding to them. What was it really interesting about this was, so the next day, the director of Leaving Never Neverland, Dan Reed, who appears to be to me to be a real dirtbag in every possible way, and, and that's actually being as generous as possible. So one of the interviews that Brandy does do, and I didn't even know about this, she starts to get a bunch of radio interviews because of our World According to Zig interview. No mainstream television but some radio interviews. And one of them, and I'm not even sure she fully understand, understood the outlet. She didn't tell me about it. I had nothing to do with, with it, was with an Australian media outlet. Well, they apparently were very rude to her. And then they had Dan Reed on, the director of Leaving Neverland, to respond to her. Now, Dan Reed showing to me that he's incredibly unnerved by the fact that his movie is being torn apart from a substantive standpoint, not by the mainstream news media, but by people who have actually looked at the facts and, uh, and it's not close. And I mean, I'm talking about every little detail of this movie, not even dealing directly with the sex abuse, just the timeline. And I mean, I could talk for an hour about all the things that have been brought into grave question about the things that he allowed to be said that are just factually not true, that aren't possible based upon what we know. Uh, for instance, Jackson's schedule and where he was and things that don't make any sense as far as 
you know, and the order in which they happened. So Reed, what does he do? He attacks Brandy by clearly showing he had not even listened to the interviews with her, didn't know the basics of her story. He effectively claimed that she was having sex with Robson at 12 years old, which she specifically said that was not the case, that she was dating him in a puppy love situation at 12 while he was allegedly being abused. And then he even retweeted story the, the story that the outlet put out where, where uh, Reed is slamming, that's the word that was used, Reed, the director of Never Leaving Neverland, slams Brandy Jackson, and he retweets it. I'm like, dude, dude, you are bragging about slamming the story of a person you have never spoken to, clearly didn't even know about before your movie came out, who completely discredits your star accuser. And you do so not in a substantive way about the relevance of her story, but effectively trying to claim that she's a slut by having had sex with your star at the age of 12. I, I mean, this guy, it, he seems to be panicked. He seems unnerved. He also seems clueless. And, and, and to my point about how no one's really buying this, my tweet to him, now that, granted, these, this is not the, the all, be all, end all way to determine who's telling the truth because popularity and truth are often directly opposed. But I'm going against the grain here, folks. I'm going against, as I normally do, the conventional wisdom. I'm not on the popular side of this story. I, I, didn't, I haven't checked it recently, but my tweet at him, mocking him for doing this, was retweeted hundreds and hundreds of times, thousands of likes. I'm not sure his original tweet got 12 retweets. <laughs> I mean, th there is no, there is no huge fan base, even on Twitter, where virtue signaling is everything, on behalf of this movie. Because I really don't think people believe it once they at least not in their hearts and souls. They may pretend that they do, because that's the politically correct thing to do. So Reed is a jackass. Uh, he's been, from a factual standpoint, he's been shown to have not done any research. His whole movie was about manipulating you emotionally, which is why, you know, all, all the, 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 the drone shots of Neverland and the syrupy music and uh, allowing his accusers to speak unfettered, incredibly slow talking for you know, it's a four hour movie. It's a movie production is what it is. It's not a documentary. So now back to TMZ. So, so yesterday TMZ continuing with their vendetta in this situation, they dramatically report that Paris Jackson, the daughter of Michael Jackson has uh, gone to the hospital because of it here in Los Angeles, because of an attempted suicide. And this made huge news. And I have no idea what the truth is with regard to Brandy Jackson. And I'm not sure that TMZ has any idea what the truth is regarding Brandy Jackson, what she did, why she may have done it or not done it uh, yesterday. But very soon after that report, Brandy Jackson tweeted at TMZ, and then I'm, I think this is a direct quote, uh, you know, fucking lie, you fucking liars, or something like that. I mean, she used the, the F word twice and made it clear that she thought that you, they, they were lying. 
That's a pretty emphatic response to someone who supposedly just uh, tried to commit suicide. That being said, I do believe something happened with Paris Jackson. I've been in communication with the members of the Jackson family who would know uh, to just make sure she was okay. And the indication I got that was that something happened. What, I don't know. Whether it was a suicide attempt, but something occurred. So I don't think it's a totally fake news story or totally made up. I do hope that maybe this will be an opportunity for Paris to tell her story and clear the air because she's been criticized for for effectively staying silent, not doing any interviews that I'm aware of uh, regarding her father and leaving Neverland. Uh, but that's the situation with regard to, to Paris Jackson. Now, uh, there's so many examples of why, how this movie in the last week has been discredited that I, I hesitate to even go into any of them because as soon as I do, I'm going to leave stuff out. That's how bad it is. I mean, just yesterday, Mark Garagos who is Michael Jackson's original attorney uh, with regard to these allegations way, way back when, uh, he tweeted out that that he had just been alerted that a quote of his, a clip of his in the movie is completely, totally taken 100%, not a little bit, 100% out of context, where he's not talking about who or what Dan Reed is implying he's talking about. There's a clip from Garagos talking about we're going to bring a ton of bricks down on these people and, you, you know, they've messed with the wrong people. I'm, I'm paraphrasing. But, you know, basically it's making it sound like, oh, we're going we're gonna to attack the, the, the victims here, the accusers. We're going to put them on trial. We're going to destroy them. Yeah, that's all bullshit. That's not what he was talking about. He was talking about something tangentially related to the case, not about the accusers. And this is one small example of how this movie was made. It's propaganda. It's not remotely a documentary. It didn't remotely care about the truth. And, you know, I have, in the process of being involved in this case, way deeper than I ever anticipated or ever wanted, because I'm not even a Michael Jackson fan. I presume Michael Jackson was guilty before his 2005 trial. The trial started to make me question it because there was so little evidence, and I thought the not guilty verdict was correct. To this day, I still have suspicions, but the more I learn about all this, almost everything people think about this case is bullcrap, at least some level of bullcrap. And obviously, having gone through the Penn State, Joe Paterno, Jerry Sandusky experience, I feel like I've already seen this movie. I mean, this this is almost exactly the same movie. And so I know a lot. Uh, what to look for, and there's all the same signs, and certainly this this leaving never. Frankly, the leaving Neverland movie because it's so steeped in bullcrap at every possible level has done more to convince me that Michael Jackson is innocent than anything else that's happened in the last 20, 25 years of of this. And to that end, I had a conversation with Brad Sunberg. Now, Brad Sunberg. I didn't, I didn't ask him on the podcast because he's, he did another very extensive podcast interview, which you can find on my Twitter feed, or I'm sure if you Google it. But Brad Sunberg is, uh, was the technical director for Michael Jackson on several of his al- albums for about a 10-year period in the later 80s and the early 90s. And he also did a lot of work at Neverland. And I had a, an extensive conversation with him yesterday. And he's been outspoken, as I said, on that podcast and on Twitter, but, um, you know, not making too much of it. His personality really, he's not, he's not a, 
a real angry guy or a big fighter. Um, but he, he cares about the truth. And, I, and it's obvious he's very credible. And the bottom line is he says that he was in studio with Michael Jackson at least 300 times in his life working on these various albums. He's guessing, but at least 300 times. And of those 300, maybe 400 times he was in a studio with Michael Jackson, he says that there was a child or a kid with him a handful of times. A handful of times out of 300 or so. So he, we're talking maybe six, seven, eight times. And of those times that there was a child or a kid with him, he thinks that Wade Robeson was there at most twice. Now, this is important. One, because Robeson makes the claim that he was sexually abused during these studio sessions, which Sundberg says is impossible based upon the way the studio sessions were set up and the situation that was in, that was occurring surrounding the studio. And there, I mean, it's a lot of people. This, this is not something that you could easily pull off. Not to mention, if that's, if that's what your M.O. was, it would be happening a hell of a lot more. If this was your M.O. to sexually abuse kids. But, but Robeson, one of his biggest problems is that he really, we're now learning, didn't even meet with Jackson, regardless of abuse, that many times in his life. He claimed in the movie that he had been sexually abused over 100 times, which sounds an awful lot like the number one victim in the Penn State Sandusky case, Aaron Fisher, who also eventually claimed at trial ludicrously that he was sexually abused uh, at least 100 times. It's an interesting number. But the point is, there's no evidence that Robeson even met with Michael Jackson even close to 100 times. And Sunberg further proves that. You know what else proves that? Lots of videotape. There's a videotape of Robeson and his mom standing outside of a record store when he was 12 years old, waiting for one of Michael Jackson's albums to be released. Now let's do the math on this. He's in the midst of being sexually abused hundreds of times by Michael Jackson, but he has to stand in line to get his album? <laughs> I'm pretty sure, pretty sure if that was happening, he probably could have gotten a, an advanced copy of the album. It doesn't, none of this makes any damn sense. And speaking of his mom, this is where we get into consciousness of guilt. This is the kind of thing that to me, prove, you know, they always say the cover up is worse than the crime. Okay, so the crime here is the lie that they made, the, the mom, that mom provided and, and Robeson really provided and his sister provided to Dan Reed and leaving Neverland. But here, here's wh where I'm now completely convinced they've got to be lying because this kind of stuff would not be happening that I'm about to tell you if they were telling the truth. So in 2011, Joy Robeson did an interview on a radio station here in Los Angeles. And in this interview, she uh, says a lot of things that are directly in contradiction to her son's current narrative. Now in 2011, uh, Robeson hasn't been aware yet, allegedly, that he was sexually abused by Michael Jackson. He was not aware of this until May uh, 8th, I think it was, of 2012. So 
it just magically started to happen. It, 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 I'm about 30 years old. He suddenly realized that sex abuse was bad, and then Michael Jackson had abused him. The reality is that he did that for statute of limitations reasons for his lawsuit, but I digress. So in this interview, Joy Robeson says a bunch of things that are problematic. One is she acknowledges that Michael Jackson and Wade didn't really spend that much time together. That's number one. <laughs> number two she totally substantiates Brandy Jackson's view of Wade as a, um, you know, a, a, someone who is effectively a man whore, that he sleeps with everything and chases women all over the place and, uh, you know, clearly is consistent with uh, Brandy's story of him having cheated on her with numerous people. She also seems to indicate that they didn't come to this country until Wade was nine years old which is a problem because Wade says that the abuse starts at seven years old. Now, here's why this is all important, okay? That's all bad. In an irrational world, should make people start to question Wade's story in a huge way. But guess what happened? So I tweet out a link to that video on YouTube. I'm like, hey, this is interesting. Wade Robeson's mom, 2011 just before, apparently, or right around the time period when Wade thinks he's going to get the job as the choreographer for the Michael Jackson Las Vegas show. Well, guess what happens within a day? Within a day of me tweeting the link to that video. Let's be clear. The, the, the YouTube account for this video hadn't posted any videos in years. Their Twitter account hasn't been active in years, okay? All of a sudden, within 24 hours, maybe less than that, of me tweeting this, guess what happens to the video? Poof. Gone. Gone from YouTube. But it gets worse than that. Now, I got to tell you, I have been amazed by the Michael Jackson fans. Michael Jackson fans get a really bad rap, including by... Dan Reed, who has compared them to ISIS, which that the part, that's the part that really infuriates me because I saw the same thing happen with Penn State, is that anybody who fights against this narrative is somehow a cult member and automatically discredited. Well, Dan Reed has actually compared Michael Jackson fans to ISIS. I haven't found that at all. These people, first of all, are fervent and passionate in their desire to find and prove the truth and man, do they bring their receipts. <laughs> Holy cow. Because in the last week, all I've had to do was tweet out, hey, anyone got this? And within minutes, I'm bombarded by multiple people with that document or that video. And it's amazing. So I tweet out, hey, guess what? The Joy Robeson video is gone. Anybody save it? And within less than a half hour, it is reposted on YouTube by multiple Michael Jackson fans who had saved it. I'm like, wow, these people are for real. <laughs> this is awesome. Well, then guess what happens? This same YouTube user who's been inactive for years, not active on Twitter for years, is suddenly making copyright infringement allegations against those people who are reposting the video. Now, what does that tell you? Okay, that tells you we now have a conspiracy to cover up. That's what that is. That is a conspiracy to cover up. Now, at the last check, I, I urge people to repost it a third time, not using the entire interview so that it can be 
it can be used under what's called fair use. Uh, to my knowledge, that has not been taken down yet. If it is, it should, it should be fought because YouTube has no right to, to take that down. This is a clearly a news story. And using a part of that interview to discredit a major news story is more than legitimate. So hopefully that'll stay. But you know what? It's not even important. The substance of it. The substance of it is interesting and I think contradicts Wade's story. But the taking down of the video in such a, 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 a dramatic fashion. I mean, the timing and, and even going to the lengths of trying to. I mean, it takes a lot of work for someone to track down people reposting this stupid radio interview from 2011 and and making copyright infringement allegations against those people who posted it. That takes time and effort. That tells me that this is organized, it's a conspiracy, and it's a cover-up. That's what it is. And Wade Robson is the most obvious liar I've ever seen being taken seriously at this level. And there's a zillion reasons why. I mean, even after his magic date of May, May 8th, 2012, uh, he's still doing interviews. He's, he, one was posted in July of 2012 where he's glowingly talking about Michael Jackson. I'm sorry. You don't get to do that. I mean, here's some rules for you, folks. If you want to be taken seriously as a child sex abuse victim, the first thing to do would be tell a parent you can't tell the police, fine, tell a parent. How about a friend? How about a journal? How about something? If you can't do that, when they go on trial, maybe not testify on their behalf. Okay? That would be a good thing. Or maybe when they die, maybe not uh, put out a statement saying they're the greatest human that's ever lived. Or write a chapter in a book about them saying the same thing. You know, maybe those would be things you shouldn't do if you want to be taken seriously. But then when you come up with this cockamamie theory that you didn't know, even though you were sleeping with Britney Spears and lots of other celebrities, you didn't know what sex is and that man-child sex is bad, that once that magic date happens, maybe you stop doing interviews praising the guy who did that to you. These are just some helpful tips if you want to be taken seriously. I mean, this is the most obvious case of a blatant liar I've ever seen. And as far as his partner, uh, this James Shortchuck, he's not as easy to disprove, but it's getting, frankly, I actually think that if it wasn't for Wade Robeson, if it was just Safechuck, Safechuck's story would be, would seem to be far less credible than it is, simply because, or than it currently appears to be, because Safe Chuck is benefiting from the utter absurdity of Robeson's story. Then in comparison, it just seems a little bat shit crazy instead of totally nuts. And and I've, I went through this last week in our interview with Taj Jackson, but Safe Chuck's story blows apart this way. Safe Chuck claims that in 2005, he didn't testify because Michael Jackson angrily called him upset that uh, he heard that uh, Safe Chuck wasn't going to testify on his behalf. Now, first of all, this doesn't sound like something Michael Jackson would do. Why would he need to call him directly? Why couldn't he find a crony to do it? I mean, but more importantly than that, we know that the story is absurd from a timeline perspective. In March of that year, the judge had declared 
James Safechuck to be off limits in the trial. He could not testify. So why is James Safechuck telling Leaving Neverland that during the trial, which goes into June of that year, Jackson's still angrily calling him their last conversation. He's going to cut off contact because he's not going to testify. That doesn't make any damn sense. And Safechuck's only claim during that time that he told anybody anything about Michael Jackson in a negative fashion is that he says to his mom that Michael Jackson's a bad man and that's why he's not going to testify. No, that's not why he's not going to testify. It's because the judge said he's not eligible to testify. And now now we have a, a domino effect here. The domino effect is, so he's lying about why he didn't testify, which then brings, obviously, into great question his statement that Michael Jackson's a bad man, which we then go to when Michael Jackson dies in 2009. When the mom, and I urge you to take a look at this if, you, if, you, if you're interested in the truth, it is some horrendous acting by his mom. I mean, horrendous acting. She is in Leaving Neverland claiming that when Michael Jackson dies, that she is so happy. She's doing a dance. Now, the first problem with her statement, other than the fact that the acting is horrific, is that she claims that she was in bed and she wakes up and she finds out he's dead. Well, okay, I get that people take naps, but she's describing this like this was news that heard that she heard overnight. She just woke up, turned on the television, and, you know, thank God the... You know, the big, you know, the wicked witch is dead. Michael Jackson is dead. Well, Michael Jackson died in the afternoon here in Los Angeles where they live. That's number one. But more importantly, the acting is horrible. And why is she dancing over his death, a guy that she thought of as her own son, based upon one comment that her son allegedly made in 2005, and her own son says he didn't realize he was abused until he saw Robeson on the Today Show when? 2013. How does that make any damn sense? And just to further substantiate that, his cousin Tony Safechuck tweets in 2013 that the whole story about Michael Jackson is bullcrap. Literally, that's what he, he tweeted. So they never bothered to tell cousin Tony? <laughs> in all these years, he still thinks Michael Jackson's awesome? Come on, people. This is about money. They're suing and, and, and that, that's, I guess, the part of this movie that bothers me most is that just on a global perspective, there's nothing about this movie that qualifies it for being made. Jackson is dead. Neither of these guys testified against him. One of them testified on his behalf at his trial, first, the very first defense witness. Neither said anything about Michael Jackson while he was alive or when he died. And they're both suing in a lawsuit that has been thrown out multiple times and in one situation the judge threw out Robeson's own testimony. It doesn't get you to first base. In fact, that doesn't get you out of the batter's box when it comes to a story having the legitimacy to be made into a national so-called documentary sanctified by Oprah Winfrey and embraced by the whole damn rest of the news media. So <clears throat> the bottom line is this. Uh, I am a thousand percent convinced that Robeson is lying. I am about 95% convinced that Safechuck is lying. Unfortunately, I'm about 90% sure they're never going to be widely exposed as lying because the media is on lockdown on this. And I, it's hard for me to imagine what's going to have to happen. Now, there are lawsuits against HBO and 
against them. So a court of law is the only place that this can be properly adjudicated because you need more than a tweet to be able to combat it. The truth is more complicated than a tweet, 280 characters. So you need a court of law. And frankly, I think the thing that the Jackson estate ought to do, and I don't have any indication that Jackson estate thinks like this. And one of the problems is when someone dies, there's no one really in charge and there's no cohesive organized effort to respond because no one person is really all that incentivized. But if I was the Jackson estate, I would say, you know what? We're going to drop all objections to a trial in this case. Robeson and Savechuck, let's bring it. Let's bring it on. Let's do this in court. Let's put this in front of a jury. And let's see whether or not you can really prove that you were abused by Michael Jackson. Because I think, frankly, if that ever occurred, they would shit themselves. I really, especially now that this has gotten so much attention, I think they would shit themselves. Because I think their entire strategy here was get a settlement. Other people, you know, there have been settlements in the past. The estate doesn't have that huge incentive. I think they overplayed their hand. And now there's not going to be a settlement. There can't be a settlement now unless somebody's really an imbecile. So, so there's not going to be a settlement. I would, if I was the Jackson estate, stop objecting. I don't even know if that's possible uh, to do because the statute of limitations are so clear in this case. And let's be, let's be very, very clear about this issue. Everything about their stories is about getting around statute of limitations. That's why the bullcrap story about we didn't realize we were sexually abused until 2012 or 2013. That's about the statute of limitations. That's what it is. The statute of limitations in California is 15 years. They made the allegation way too late. So now they need a loophole. The loophole is, and there's a, it's, they even, they even reference in Robeson's own lawsuit when they reference his May 8, 2012 date, they actually reference that this allows him, I'm paraphrasing, but they actually reference this allows him to get under the statute of limitations in California. Because it says that if you didn't realize you had been abused, then the clock hasn't started yet. What a load of crap. I mean, come on. There there is zero chance that any human being wouldn't understand that they had been sexually abused. He's not claiming repressed memories. But this is a guy who is very sexually promiscuous. He's having sex at the highest levels possible. And based upon our interview with Brandy, there is zero indication he's suffered any kind of of sexual uh, repression or any damage in his psyche in this realm. It's all bullcrap. It's all bullcrap. And it's obvious bullcrap that has been bought into by people who want to know better, but who are afraid because of political correctness in the post-Me Too era. Um, I mentioned the, the, the Michael Jackson fans have been amazing. <laughs> Obviously, as a, I've been struck by the difference in the way that they have reacted to the way Penn State fans react. And there's a lot of reasons why, a ton of reasons why, partially because of the way the stories have evolved differently. But I think the number one reason is that because Jackson has been facing these kind of allegations for so long, his fans have been, like, uh, (laughs) fire-tested. Meanwhile, the Penn State fans who lived in Happy Valley, Pennsylvania, their whole lives living in this cocoon where they never faced any real adversity, uh, they didn't know what the hell to do. 
when that whole thing hit in November of 2011 and no one was prepared and everyone panicked and everyone, you know, everyone made a huge mistake thinking that they could defend Joe Paterno without finding out the truth about what really did and did not occur with Jerry Sandusky. So I can understand why the differences, but the differences have been stark. And uh, it's been interesting. I don't know where I go from here on this. There may not be anything else for me to do on this, but uh, I am definitely invested in seeing Wade Robeson and James Safechuck exposed as the liars that they are. So if there's anything I can do to help that, I'll be there. I'm just not optimistic about it. Now, speaking of uh, total frauds, I I have to mention this college admissions scandal. And what a movie this is going to be. I mean, this, this is watching the, uh, the um, federal prosecutor describe what happened in this case sounded basically like a movie pitch. It sounded like he was in a Hollywood, in, in a Hollywood office. Uh, here's this great idea for a movie I have, and here's my pitch. We've got a bunch of Hollywood stars, uh, you know, including uh, Lori Loughlin and Felicity Huffman and her husband, William Macy, and uh, a bunch of other rich people, and they're going to pay money to this guy who is going to create a scam to get their children into very highly selective colleges. And this is going to happen in a number of ways. We're going to manipulate their, uh, their test scores. We're going to have someone take the test for them. Uh, we're going to uh, have college athletic coaches pretend that they're athletes and get them on the preferred list for, for admission. Uh, we're going to do all sorts of things. To cheat the system, we're going to um, make charitable contributions that are bogus, that are actually bribes, and uh, essentially this worked. And it worked at a lot of very high-profile universities, including my alma mater, Georgetown University. It also occurred uh, at USC. And I will say, um, one of the things I saw online when this story broke is that for some reason, people wanted to rip on USC. Uh, University of Southern California here in Los Angeles. Now, I I grew up a Notre Dame fan. I've hated USC my whole life. But um, first of all, USC is a good school. But more importantly, uh, USC might have one of the most valuable degrees other than Harvard or Yale in in all uh, of university system. And here's why. And I don't know exactly why this is the case, but it is widely known in Southern California that if you are a USC grad in good standing, you will get hired by somebody who is also a USC grad. That's just the way they do it. For whatever reason, that, that bond, that degree really means something. So now maybe, maybe that's going to change because of this story, but the reality is a USC degree has enormous value to it. Real-world value, not just put it on the wall and, hey, I graduated from USC, which is also known as University of Spoiled Children, uh, which is true, no question about that. A lot of rich kids go to USC, a lot of Hollywood uh, stars, Hollywood people, their kids go to USC, largely because it's incredibly expensive and you need money to go there. You also, you know, it helps to get in. That's just the way private universities work, for better or for worse. Now, not to this degree, and it shouldn't. And I'm not defending this at all. This is as scandalous as it gets. It's out, as outrageous as it gets. I'm just trying to explain and understand it. So, th- this mocking of USC is not fair because the USC admission and theoretical degree 
are far more valuable than, for instance, my Georgetown degree. <laughs> I mean, heck, if someone wanted my Georgetown degree, and you know, I'd be happy to change the, the lettering and some numbers for you know a couple grand, not maybe that, maybe a couple hundred. Be happy to give you my Georgetown degree. It's worthless because we don't have that kind of networking that USC does. Now, supposedly, it's one of the best universities in the country. I don't know that it is or isn't. I only went to one college. You know, I, I somehow graduated with basically a B average without working very hard. Uh, I would not have gotten in if my parents had not gone there. If my father was not an influential board member, I know this. This is not uh, a matter of controversy uh, within my family. There's nothing illegal about that. It's, that's the way private universities run. I mean, you if you are... Uh, somebody who has a connection to the university in a, in a very real way, like, for instance, having parents who are alumni, then you know, that is something the university values. They particularly value it if that person who's an alumnus gives money to the school because they need money. And so whether it's you're donating to a building or if you're just giving in to the general fund, but having a connection to the university matters. Now, in my particular situation, I happen to be applying to Georgetown as a, a legacy, if you will, uh, with my parents both having gone there, my father being uh, you know, a fairly influential person on the board and had been or would end up being for, for years after that. Uh, I happen to be applying the year after Georgetown won its only basketball championship with Patrick Ewing and in the class that would be the 200th class in the history of the school. So I was really behind the eight ball. I mean, everyone was applying to Georgetown in the year that I applied. Would not have gotten in. Would not have gotten in without that. Now, is that right or wrong? I, I don't, you know, look, I, I, I don't think very highly of my Georgetown days. I mean, I, and that's mostly my own fault. Um, my, you know, George, Georgetown has done nothing for me. In fact, I think in the media business, Having a Georgetown degree has actually been a negative uh, because most people in the media business, especially where I was, where I started as a sportscaster, they're going to lowly state schools and they look at uh, Georgetown. They oh, they get this perception. Oh, here's this white privileged male who uh, went to Georgetown, a hoity-toity school, and then you know anything that fits into the prism of that narrative is automatically a negative. And unfortunately, there's a lot of my personality that probably fits into that. <laughs> So I'm not I'm not blameless here. I'm just saying that in my in my perception, my Georgetown degree has been a negative. So putting that aside, you know, that Georgetown was part of this whole deal. I think the thing about the story that is most amazing to me, and this does relate to to why I mentioned how I perceive my Georgetown degree to not be of great value, is I'm amazed that the monetary value that was placed on admission to some of these schools. I mean, these people were paying hundreds of thousands, if not over that, sometimes over a million dollars to get their, their kids into schools that they were not apparently even qualified for. How does that make any sense from a monetary standpoint? Now, look, I told you I think USC is a, deg a degree that has monetary value. Harvard is a degree that has monetary value. Yale is a degree that has monetary value. Maybe MIT, uh, you know, some of these other places, they have monetary value. The rest of them, eh, it's a college degree and it's, it is what you make of it. And I did a lousy job of making uh, Georgetown uh, of value for me. And it was partially because of the, the, the career I decided to go into. 
But let me tell you, the first part of this thing that doesn't make any sense is that there's a, an enormous overvaluation of, of getting a college degree at a certain university. And I think that that overvaluation is going to implode sometime in the near future. I mean, if there's a, you talk about a housing bubble or a stock market bubble, I think the biggest bubble in the world is, is higher academia. I mean, the idea that somehow a, a college degree, I mean, college degrees at a good college now are at least uh, in, in the range of a quarter million dollars. I mean, that's insane. It, it's totally ridiculous. It's just flat out ridiculous. Yeah, even Charles Barkley went to Auburn, would, would figure that out. I don't even think he graduated from Auburn. He did fine. I mean, we're living in a world, by the way, where some of our richest people didn't graduate from college. So how, how colleges maintain this scam, I don't know. The other part of this thing that confuses me is the college coaches that took bribes. Like even the rowing, the rowing coach at USC, the tennis coach at, at Georgetown. My impression, and this has been a long time since I went through this, but I, I, I've been part of the, until recently, the last couple of years I quit in protest over something Georgetown did that was super liberal. But I, I have been a, a Georgetown alumni interviewer. So I've been involved in the admissions process. And a, and a minor coach recommending that a kid get an admission is nowhere near a sure thing. It's basically a little bit weightier than a decent letter of recommendation from a high school teacher. So I don't know whether or not these guys scammed the scammers into thinking they had more power than they did, or maybe I'm missing something, but I doubt very seriously that the rowing coach at USC uh, or the tennis coach at Georgetown had the power uh, to put somebody who's not even an athlete on the yes list for admission. Um, but so that confuses me. But the bottom line is this is a huge scandal, and it goes to show, once again, the theme of this hour, how easy these frauds are to pull off and how, how fake so much of what we think is real really is. And in that end, you know, there was a great 2020 this Friday, which is previewing a, an eight, another HBO film, which I hope will have a lot more credibility than Leaving Neverland, that deals with the whole Theranos scam. Have you heard about this? You probably have. This is the, the company that claimed that they had an amazing way to test a drop of your blood at a Walgreens and they could test for hundreds of diseases and within a few hours. The CEO was Elizabeth Holmes, uh, this, this uh, white female who dropped out of Stanford, pretended to dress like Steve Jobs, and she completely conned the news media. The news media bought in hook, line, and sinker that she was the next great CEO, this young female blonde blue eyes and she dropped out of stanford and she's going to take the world by storm change the world make billions of dollars it's all bullshit total bullshit total complete bullshit and i, I urge you to check out the stories uh, involved with that because it, it tells us so much about so many things i mean it's basically we learned no lessons from bernie madoff none all the same people that got snookered by Bernie Madoff got snookered by Elizabeth Holmes. And we, we'll learn no lessons from Jesse Smollett. We have Jesse Smollett, and we're going to be snookered by Wade Robson and, and James Safechuck. I mean, we, we never learn our lessons here. Never. She effectively groomed Silicon Valley 
because Silicon Valley has, has gotten this perception of what a great CEO is going to be, a college dropout with a, a little peculiar personality, a little bit of a weird voice, maybe a little bit of autism uh, or, or Asperger's, uh, you know, the, the, the dressing like Steve Jobs. She, she knew that Silicon Valley was groomed to perceive her in a certain way, and she took advantage of it, and the media bought in hook, line, and sinker, and they were wrong. And this is the kind of thing that happens now. Maybe it's always happened. We're just finding out about it more often. But we need to learn and be much more wary and skeptical of these kinds of stories because in retrospect, her story was obviously bullshit from the beginning. And I do want to, you know, it's so depressing to think about how horrible humanity is, but I want to give a shout out to Tyler Schultz. Wow, I have a new hero. Tyler Schultz. Check out the story of Tyler Schultz if you're interested in the Theranos situation. Tyler Schultz is the grandson of George Schultz, Ronald Reagan's Secretary of State. And Tyler Schultz went against everybody, including his own grandfather, to help bring down Theranos and allow the Wall Street Journal to report the truth about what a fraud that whole thing is. And he's only it was only like 25 years old at the time. Wow. Wow. He's got bigger balls than I do. So my new hero, based upon what I currently know about him, Tyler Schultz. Uh, another fraud out this week, Jamie Shoopy. I don't know if it's Shoopy or Shoop or whatever it is, S-H-U-P-E, was acclaimed several years ago in the liberal media as the first man in the United States legally recognized as a non-binary person. In other words, he was transforming to a woman. First person legally recognized as a non-binary person. Well, this week he came out and said, guess what? It was all a sham. And I realized it was a scam. Uh, this whole thing is not natural, trying to be, a, you know, I'm a man. I should, I'm, thank God I kept my penis. And um, I, I was never uh, really non-binary. I was never really a woman. And it was a mental disorder. And isn't it interesting that the news media, try to Google, try to Google Jamie Shoup. You're not going to find anything in the mainstream news media. It was huge when, he, when it happened. New York Times embraced the whole thing. Now that it's, yeah, guess what? I, I got duped. It was all a sham. Nothing. Nothing. And finally, in keeping with all that, I, I, as I always do, I keep a very close track of the drought numbers, especially here in California. Here we are in supposed permanent drought in California. Less than three years ago, the governor of state, Jerry Brown, was still saying with very uh, huge media platform, Total Embrace, New York Times, Washington Post. California is in a permanent drought. That was less than three years ago. Officially, as of right now, here are the number of inches of the state of California that is in any level of drought. Zero. Zero. There's not an inch of California, based upon the most recent statistics for the first time since 2011, that has any drought at all. And by the way, the United States of America has almost the lowest level of drought in the history of recorded uh, statistics, which is 20 years. They go back 20 years of very detailed drought statistics in the United States. The United States' vast and diverse geography from Alaska to Florida. We are almost the lowest level of drought we have ever been. This despite the fact that supposedly 18 of the last 19 years have been the hottest on record. I'm sorry, I smell bullshit. It's not possible. All right. So 
that does it for this uh, one hour, extended one hour of the World According to Zig podcast, uh, where uh, the bottom line is, if it smells like bullshit, it's probably bullshit. <laughs> Please make sure you share this via social media, Twitter, Facebook, word of mouth, what have you. Make sure you check out the Individual One podcast for all your Donald Trump news. You can find that at our website, freespeechbroadcasting.com. And also do yourself a favor, if you're one of those people who sleeps and when you sleep, you use sheets, please pay attention to this important message. My name is John Ziegler. Our website is freespeechbroadcasting.com. Coffee? Oh, thanks. How did you sleep? Ugh, like a baby. I don't want to get out of bed, ever. These sheets are mm, incredibly soft. What did you say they're called again? Performance bedding by Sheiks. <laughs> performance bedding? <laughs> yeah, they're made from super high-tech performance fabric. They're incredibly breathable, so you're not waking up at night throwing covers off and then an hour later throwing them back on. Huh, no wonder I slept so good. Since I started using Sheiks, I sleep like a baby. No more sweaty nights for me. No? Well. <laughs> well, I like them because they're soft. They feel like, mmm, silk. Performance fabric, huh? Maybe we should... Oh, I don't know. Try them out again. <laughs> <laughs> Comfort and performance for better sleep. That's Sheiks. S-H-E-E-X. Sheiks. Try Sheiks for 30 nights risk-free. Go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com, promo code 1212. Sleepcoolnow.com, 1212.